Who are we? Who is one of us? Who are we part of? Whose humanity do we recognise as akin to ours? Following the massacre in Christchurch and then the Easter bombings in Sri Lanka, we again face questions of them and us as national and global tensions play out in new configurations of violence and terror. In this symposium, community members, academics and artists considered the fraught term, one of us, exploring questions of the normalization of racism, everyday Islamophobia, and the connections between various forms of othering, us and them, in Australia and elsewhere. Now, what I will do is, I will just will pose one question. You can reframe it and reflect on it in your own way. The, the general question is that, what can we do to prevent this kind of atrocity in the future? Each of you will have up to five minutes, I think. I guess I wanna um, bring together some of the conversations that we've had uh, a little bit earlier and some of the questions that were asked. Um, for me, a lot of my work is engaging with um, people who uh, have very, very difficult views, very challenging views. Uh, including perpetrators of violence. And I think the whole conversation that we've been having around what one of us means is that we have to confront the fear within us dealing with the people who, who do things that are um, atrocious and horrible and unim unimaginable and that inflict the biggest fears in us. I have the privilege of working with young people um, we bring films to school and we engage um, students from year three all the way to um, year 12, talking about refugees, talking about race, talking about racism, bullying. And one of the things that I've found is there are always kids in the room that would say things like, um, don't let any more refugees in because they will bomb us the terrorists, or they'll bring diseases. Those are the kids that we need to engage. Those are the kids that we really need to bring in to our circle and have the conversation as if they are one of us. And I think part of the, the, the trouble or the, I think as a society, we are very unskilled in dealing with our own aversions the things that we find um, averse to, and we have to overcome that. Um, and I'm sure a lot of us do that in, in many ways in our everyday life, but um, I think that's, that's a, a, a big challenge for all of us. But um, working with young people, I find it really, um, it's, it's a really, really engaging space. And I think we need to engage young people. We need to give them the forum to have an opinion and not to be afraid of what comes out of their mouth. We need to have the courage um, to, to engage with people who have very, very difficult and challenging views, who would say the, the most awful things. Um, and I remember, we, so what we do is we, we go into schools and we do a survey, we get them to write about what they think about you know, refugees and, and, and what they think about the whole issue. And then we show them the film and then we do a survey afterward to see if their views change. And one of the things that we found is that 
you could have someone who might say, um, no, we shouldn't let any more refugees in, um, or we shouldn't let any more Muslims in because you know they're all terrorists and they you know blow up. But a couple of questions down the track, where you ask about what do you think about locking people up in detention? And the same person would say, no, I don't think that's right. There's something, and that is that little gem that I think we need to engage with. Um, so that's all I'll say for that for now. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Yahya, two syllables. Um, in Italy, I'm Giovanni. In Ireland, I'm Ian. Uh, you can call me Jono in Australia, <laughs> but I do prefer uh, Yahya. Uh, my heritage is uh, Egyptian, so I have 10,000 years behind me, uh, which is pretty good genetics, I think, uh, if we're going to go down the racial kind of path. My wife is of Turkish origin, uh, which is kind of interesting because I was born and raised in Canada and she was born and raised in Subiaco, <laughs> which makes my children confused. <laughs> they actually think they're Malaysian because we visit there so often. Uh, and in, in the pun really is um, my aim at a solution. Um, I'm a local imam here in Perth, and uh, I function as assistant principal at the Langford Islamic College. I have more than a thousand students under my charge. I'm the only one who teaches Islamic studies in high school to the students. Uh, it's a duty that I take uh, quite uh, seriously concerning some of the contemptuous issues that all of us are probably assembled here to hear about. Uh, but I also function with some of the students who used to be at my school, who now are at Curtin University. I'm also chaplain at the University of Western Australia. Uh, I lecture internationally about Islam and Islamic topics, uh, in particular about theology, Quranic ecosis. I have licenses to teach in the Quran and the scriptures of the Hadith of the Prophet meaning oral tradition. And I say that all as an introduction in the five minutes that I have uh, because with all of that behind me, I want you to know I don't have an answer. And you're like, well, why are you sitting there? Uh, the reason I don't have an answer is because there isn't one answer or two or three. And uh, anyone who comes up with theories and ideas, I actually see Professor Tilbury there. Is that you, Bray? How you doing? Where you been? <laughs> it's good to see you anyway. <laughs> uh, so she used to invite me to do a program, I just saw you there, sorry, uh, called Islam, Terror, and Multiculturalism. It was a hoot. You know, Islam, Terror, Multiculturalism. It was awesome. Uh, but here are some of the things that I think that are important. Two days after the Christchurch um, massacre, I received a phone call from people who know me from the United States and they said, listen, they're going to need help in dealing with the janazah, with the funeral prayers. Nobody on the ground there, nobody in Australia nearby 
has ever performed the ritual bathing with traumatized bodies to that extent. And we need you to help them. I said, oh, they'll be all right. You know, I read in the paper, 40 guys flew over from Australia. They'll be fine. And it's not something here that in Perth anybody knows that I'm good at that. I was trained in that somewhat. And on Wednesday, they said, we booked you a flight um, because uh, the family of Mu'ad, may Allah have mercy upon him, I've got to visit their home when I was in Christchurch. Uh, his was the first janazah that was performed. And a lot of the people who assembled to uh, bathe the body ritually, it was quite difficult for them. And sometimes it takes someone from outside to kind of assist. So myself and many other notable uh, people, many of you wouldn't even know we were there until after the fact, um, we arrived. And uh, literally from the plane, 10 a.m. Uh, arrival into uh, Christchurch, went straight to the funeral home where we uh, began to teach how to deal with a body that has 25 bullet holes, how to seal the body so that water doesn't enter, so that when you lift it up for burial and there's water inside, it doesn't begin to bleed because that's what people will think. And I know I'm being a little bit explicit, but you need to see the picture. You need to have kind of a thought about the trauma that the people uh, experience. So we did our best, um, and the community over there, I'm not talking about the Islamic community, I'm talking about the New Zealanders. I arrived at Perth Airport, and uh, my flight initially cost $1,400. It was refunded to 700 at cost. I was upgraded without request. Uh, although I had access to the lounge because I'm a frequent traveler, I was given extra care. Uh, landing in Auckland, transferring into Christchurch was impeccable. The attention of uh, Air New Zealand, and I'm not paid by them, but I should be actually. Uh, the level of love that the Kiwi people showed upset me as a Canadian, because I always thought Canadians were like, you know, I'm from Canada, we're, we do it right. And I could tell you that I walked from the hotel maybe about 50 meters, at least like five cars would stop in that 50 meters. Where are you going? Can I drive you? Are you here to help? Can I take you? Uh, I drank maybe 20 cups of coffee that I never paid for because they were just people who brought coffee machines and said, coffee's on us, sandwiches on us. The solution that I wish to offer is uh, not new. It's to show compassion and to show compassion to the aggressor, to love them to death, not death that you take their life, but until their death. 
And one of the things that I learned from you know this amazing, I don't know her name, but I can see her face, and I'll end with this. Um, after the Friday prayers, where we, were, we went to perform the funeral prayers, something you might not know, but the prime minister was there for all the funeral prayers on Friday. She was sitting in that tent, there were no cameras, nobody saw, nobody knew. You know, she was incredible. Uh, as incredible as you might think she was in her public stance, it was beyond uh, what you would believe in her private stance. Um, but there was this wonderful, sweet old lady. She saw me in my clerical outfit and she hugged me. And I'm okay with that, I guess. You know, it's not something that, you know, you expect. And she just gave me this hug and she said to me, I want you to know how sorry I am. And I said to her, you have nothing to be sorry for. This wasn't you. And she said, I want you to know this is not us. And it dawned on me for the first time. As a Muslim, I've always found it really offensive when people ask me to apologize or to condemn or to kind of, why don't you imams say more? And if you actually follow imams, if you follow me on Facebook, like many others, you'll see we're quite vocal about our stances. And I always find that you should know that as a human being, it's condemnable by me. But when she said it, it gave me a completely different perspective. That in my understanding, I always assumed that people wanted me to take ownership for something I didn't do. And the reality was that they were looking at it in a completely different light than the one that I saw. She didn't want me to condemn it because I owned it. She wanted me to condemn it because she wanted me to show empathy. And as Muslims, part of our upbringing is that you have sabr, meaning staunchness, just hold on, don't cry. You know, I remember my dad, even at my grandfather's funeral, he said, Yahya, hold it. I was like, I'm four years old. <laughs> you know, that's just how we were brought up. And I think for a lot of people, they expect a little bit more emotion. So I thought I would share that with you, that as a Muslim, the tragedy of Sri Lanka really devastated me because I've visited there and I've lectured there and I've loved and I love people there. And it really, uh, I was in Turkey when I found, or maybe it was Uzbekistan, I'm either in between when I found out and it just literally broke my back that something like that could happen. And I want you to know as a Muslim, as a cleric and as an Imam, that that's what I believe in, my, in the depth of my heart. And I want that to be clear to anyone in attendance or anyone who hears it later. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Fadzi Wande. Fadzi is um, actually Shona. I was born in Zimbabwe, and it means happy, and one day is pronounced one day, not two days. So the moral behind my name is I'm guaranteed to make you happy for one day, not two days. <laughs> and I do have an ex-husband to prove that. <laughs>
but considering we're not talking about marriage, <laughs> you, you should all be safe. Um, that's just a lighthearted way to introduce myself. Um, but first of all, I, I actually want to start by um, paying my respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. And I know that in this room you've heard it, you know, from so many different speakers, and you hear it throughout the discourse of whatever it is that you do. And it can become a checklist, it can become like, oh, there we go again, somebody else, you know, um, showing respect. <coughs> but in light of what we're talking about tonight, I just want us to pause and really think about why that's important. Because if we don't put ourselves in spaces, if we don't allow things to actually mean something to us personally, they become a checklist and they become that thing that we do. And if we think about what we're talking about tonight, um, a lot of what has happened, a lot of the things that have brought us here is because we tend to brush things like that aside without actually thinking about what it means and, and reflecting on it. And so whenever I, I have the opportunity to hear a welcome to country, or to acknowledge welcome to country. I actually think about tradition. I think about my grandfather who had eight children, six daughters and two sons, and how he took it upon himself to make sure that all his daughters were educated. And as a result of my aunties and my father traveling overseas for education, that filtered down to me. And I grew up believing that I could do anything I put my mind to because I had role models in my house and that was started by my grandfather, and he has his own tradition. And so when I come to Australia, and now that I'm a proud Australian, it is such an honor for me to be able to acknowledge countries and, and, and to, to be able to show respect to people who've gone before us, that all of us here are standing on the shoulders of people who have gone before us. And if I think about that, and I think about the fact that the culture that we stand on, that we live on, is the oldest culture in the world. I think about the sacrifices that the first people made for each and every one of us to call Australia home. Um, how can we not consider it a privilege and an honor to just take a couple of minutes, sometimes even one, to really reflect and put ourselves in the space. And so that's where I'd like us to begin, by really putting ourselves in the space and, and sharing um, and really thinking about what this shared humanity is because if we want strategies on how we're gonna deal with it, I think it starts with that. As basic as us putting ourselves in spaces and really thinking about why we do certain things that we do. Because it means so much to the people that are from here, the first people, and it also does something in us because it unites us. It unites us in a way that we normally wouldn't, we, we tend to take for granted. And so in the, you know, in, in all the things that we've been hearing and, you know, uh, and all the tragedies and, and we hear about them so many times and, you know, I think what we need to do as people is we need to get better at talking about race and racism, not when there's been a tragedy. And I think the problem within our community is we don't actually know how to talk about race and racism. We actually think it's one and the same thing. We don't know the difference between race and racism. And so we find it very difficult to have those conversations. And so conversations like today, in my opinion, should be a conversations that we're having constantly. 
because these are conversations that impact our communities and our society. And we shouldn't have to wait for a tragedy for this to happen. You know, one of the things we say in my culture when we have funerals is that, you know, um, when we mourn people, we tend to go to the house of the person who's, who's deceased. And, you know, we do a whole series of things and, you know, similar to, you know, what might be awake, but the whole week until the person is buried, we're singing and we're reminiscing and, you know, we just come together. And one of the things that we were talking about within the Zimbabwe community, because we've lost six people in a period of six weeks um, to various things, is that it is so painful that we have to come together at a funeral to celebrate life. And yet, when there's no funeral, we're not celebrating. And so, you know, um, when you are seeing people at funerals and, and sad moments, you, you start to think about how much we take for granted in life. And so I would like to propose that, you know, rather than us uh, coming together when tragedy has struck, and tragedy has struck and it's hurt our community, we need to be having these conversations on a daily basis. We need to be understanding um, and clearly defining exactly what we're talking about. And the reality is, um, you know, I could come here and I could give you my two cents worth of what I think we should do. But before we even get to all of that, I think we need to take ownership um, and consider what we have created. If we just even talk about race, race is a political and a social construct, meaning that we created it. We created racism. You know, it might not be you sitting on that chair, but as a people, we created that. That whole notion of difference is something human beings created. Because the reality is we are one race. But somewhere over time, there's certain people who felt that they were more privileged and more important than others. And we see this not only based on skin color, we see it even in religion and so forth and so forth, right? And so when do we take ownership over that as a people to say, you know what, we created something. And yes, it might have happened years before we're, we're here, but the reality is it has happened. And I think that, you know, like I started when I was talking about just acknowledging country, um, I think it is sad for us to want to come together and solve problems outside our doorstep when it can annoy people that we even do acknowledgement or welcome to country. You know, there's some people who actually get annoyed by that. And I mean, those are the things in small steps over time that actually result in this division, this fear, this isolation. You know, you might think it's just nothing, it's just why do we have to do it? But over time, how many things do we come across in our day-to-day -day life that we dismiss and say it's not important? And if we compound all of that, it really results in hate and it results in fear. And so I don't have all the answers, but one thing I do know is that, you know, if I think about my own personal story, because we can only bring our lived experience to a space. And I think that we need to create more spaces where people can bring their lived experience, where we recognize that your story isn't my story, but it's still a story worth sharing. One of the programs that I run is called Courageous Conversations on Race. And um, in that, what we talk a, a lot about is uh, an agreement of having conversation about race, about difficult things. And we say that if you wanna speak truth, you have to allow somebody else to speak truth. 
but fundamentally it's also acknowledging that when we are having these difficult conversations about things that we might not agree on, we're also acknowledging that we're not trying to come to a place where we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. So I just wanted to put that as a starter to say, um, before we actually get into strategies, let's also reflect on ourselves and think about what we can do individually to create the inclusive uh, society we want to see. Thank you.